0: Revelation chapter 16 this morning as we get going. Revelation chapter 16. We've been considering the end of Revelation chapter 15, starting in verse 5, all the way through chapter 16, under the title, a most severe yet worthy judgment. And I call this a worthy judgment, taking this word right from the text. That's what an angel in chapter 16 says about God's judgment being poured out. He says, "'Just are you, O Holy One, "'who is and who was, "'for you brought these judgments.'" For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Or as it reads in the original Greek language, they are worthy. This is a worthy judgment. It makes sense. It adds up. Whether we understand it or not, the final judgment of God is fitting for the sinners of the world. According to this angel, it is what they deserve. But the title also calls attention to the fact that this is a severe judgment. And the word severe, of course, means intense, extreme, dangerous. How severe is this judgment? I mean, what other horrors can God unleash upon the world in his just wrath that he has already done in Revelation, going back to chapters 8 and 9? We've already looked at those some time ago now, but in Revelation 8 and 9, God causes hail and fire mixed with blood to be thrown on the earth, and over 19 million square miles of earth is burned up. The trees, the grass, everything. If you're wondering how many square miles, uh, uh, how many many square uh, acres uh, is 19 million, did I say square miles? I mean 19 million acres, okay, you're wondering how many that is all of South America and North America combined total only fifteen million square acres, so that is already the situation on the earth before we come to our text this morning, but not only the Earth but also the sea has already been impacted by judgments. If we go back to Revelation 8 and 9, John says this burning mountain, maybe a meteorite is what he saw, the size of a mountain, has hit the sea, turning a third of the sea into blood, killing a third of the sea life, destroying a third of the ships and those who sail on them in the tsunami that follows. That's over 46 million square miles of ocean. And it will have a devastating effect on the Earth's ecosystem and the oxygen levels. Well over half of the oxygen that is on the earth is produced from the ocean. Then in another judgment, one-third of the fresh water is poison and people die from drinking it. That's a third of the fresh water on the planet. And the world begins to grow darker. The light of the sun and the moon and the stars are dimmed and the sun does not shine bright for much of the day anymore. So overall, the atmosphere of the earth is murky, it's dark, it's dreary. But then there are judgments that target individuals. In Revelation 9, these hideous demonic creatures with a sting that causes great pain, they're released from the abyss and they go after only those who refuse to turn to the Lord and to be saved. And these unbelievers are tormented by these demon locusts for five months and the pain will be so unbearable that they will beg for death, chapter 9 says, but they will not be able to have death. But sometime after the five months of torment, many of those who wanted to die finally get their wish because the Lord releases four mighty angels into the world to kill a third of humankind with an angelic army, 200 million fierce lion-headed calvary. And these are severe judgments that have already devastated the earth well before we come to Revelation 15 and 16. This is the world that people are already living in. With a third of the ocean and fresh water and vegetation destroyed, with a dark pall cast upon a dimly lit planet, and the memory of these demonic creatures and the fierce angelic riders and sickness and death, this is the new world that the people are dealing with. Now, you would think, you would think that people all over the planet would seriously consider their eternal destiny at this point. We pray even now, don't we? When something happens in the world in the wake of destruction, that people would turn to the Lord. I think we've been praying that for the the people suffering uh, because of, of Russia's army right now. And, and uh, we are getting reports and, and uh, testimonies from people who are surrounded that, that those who don't know the Lord, would, the Lord would use that in their lives and, and would glorify himself even through this situation and bring people to him in the Ukraine. That they would be reminded of their hopelessness and their vulnerability and reach out for someone to save them. And when people see some guy holding a sign on the street corner with a Bible verse, warning of coming judgment. You've probably seen that in Greenville from time to time. And it's a bright, sunny day outside. We might go by and people just roll their eyes and think, well, that's one way to live your life. And it seems that nothing will ever happen. But if someone were warning of final judgment in the world after what happens in Revelation 8 and 9 has taken place, that people would listen with great interest and concern and be willing to believe that there is a holy God who created them, who sent His Son to die for them, that they might not perish forever and believe in Him for eternal life. You would think that's what so many people would do If they find out, you know what? I was told about this. I'm seeing it's really happening. Maybe there is a God after all. I'd better check this out. But at the end of Revelation chapter 9, after all of these terrible judgments comes, here is is how John describes the general mood of the survivors. This is Revelation 9, 20 through 21. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold. That's really ironic, by the way, because the demons were the ones tormenting them and they're still worshiping them. They wouldn't give it up. And their idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, can't help them at all. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. In other words... Despite all they've been through, despite the fact that even as they saw God's protection on those who were following Christ during these terrible judgments, some of them, uh, John's very specific, only target those who do not know the Lord. Even seeing all of this, they will not repent. What does repent mean? Repent means to change your mind about the direction you're headed and to go another direction. That's basically what repent means. Turn around. You're you're going the wrong way. Turn around. In this case, to repent is to say, I've changed my mind about living a life of idolatry and sin, and I'm going to follow God instead. But no, even with all of that pressure, they would not turn from their sin to God. But as we've seen already, the situation grows far worse I asked the question a few moments ago, how severe is this judgment if we've already seen severe judgment in Revelation? How much worse can it get besides Revelation 8 and 9? The answer is worse, (laughs) much worse. What we read in Revelation 16 is so severe that it renders the earth uninhabitable. In fact, I've alluded to what Jesus says about this in his uh, discourse with the disciples on Mount the Mount of Olives. But I'm going to show you, this is from Matthew's account of that conversation. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 21 and 22, for then there will be a great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. If Jesus is saying it's going to be this bad. It's going to be this bad. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Uh, who, uh, why does, does he shorten the days there of the judgment? He doesn't shorten it here so that unbelievers will survive because at the end of tribulation period, all unbelievers have not survived. They are all killed after the Lord judges them when he returns. He is shortening it because of the sake of the elect. And when it says here that they should be saved, he's not talking about uh, uh, spiritual salvation. He's talking about that they're going to survive. They're going to be left alive at the end. And that's why Jesus goes on to compare the judgment to the time of Noah later on in the discourse, the time of Noah, when the flood came and swept them all away. And then he says these familiar verses to you, two men will be in the field and one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill and one will be taken and one left. This does not refer, some of you might've been told, to the rapture of the church. Those who are taken are not caught up to meet the Lord in the air. This is a different context. This is about what happens when the Lord returns, bringing judgment to the earth. Some will be taken away in judgment, just like the flood swept them away. They're taken alive into judgment, and the others who are left are the ones who are saved. This is the final climactic severe judgment described in Revelation 16. Now, I said as we began the study Uh, A couple of weeks ago, that there are three reasons that this severe and final judgment is a worthy judgment, even though we may not understand it. It is a worthy judgment upon those who experience it. The first reason is because of God's holiness. Because when we sin against the holy God and our sin violates that holiness, it demands that something be put back into order. We know this intuitively. If I see your wallet or your purse lying around and I reach in and take $20 out, I've just sinned against you. Something is out of balance. Something has to be set to rights. And what is out of balance is more than just the stolen money. Like if I say, oh, here's your $20 back, that wouldn't address the fact that I wrongfully took something from you that did not belong to me. This isn't just a business transaction. There's sin involved. And that's what God's judgment does. It addresses the wrong in a way that is equal to the sin that was committed. God's judgment brings up the other side of the scales so that everything is put back into balance. If we think that God's judgment is too severe, it's because we cannot comprehend how holy God is or how awful our sin is. In fact, that's the second reason that those who go to judgment are worthy or des- uh, deserving of it, uh, human sin itself. And there are two sins in particular that are highlighted in the book of Revelation. They're highlighted specifically in uh, chapters 15 and 16. First, the refusal to worship God alone. And secondly, the persecution of God's people. And we've covered these points anyway. I'm not preaching this sermon as fast as I can. Uh, this is just sort of a, little, a, a review of what we saw over the last few weeks. And these sins go hand in hand, these two, the refusal to worship God and the persecution of of, uh, God's people. They go hand in hand because if we live for God, our testimony is a constant reminder to the sinful world that there is something else they ought to be worshiping alone besides what they are worshiping. And that is why the entire book of Revelation is about the vindication of God and his people. But there's a final reason that God's judgment is worthy for those who deserve it. As we prepare our hearts to gather around the Lord's table this morning, as we look at this text again and kind of go through these judgments, I want us to be thinking about this one final reason that really comes to the fore in chapters 15 and 16 that make this judgment worthy or deserved. And it is simply human hardness, hard-heartedness, stubbornness, obstinance an absolute refusal to turn from sin. This hardness is seen in the fact that even when the judgment comes, the reaction of the sinner is not to cry out for mercy and seek to turn to God, hoping it's not too late. You and I would do that. Like, oh, I, I, if I didn't believe, now I believe, I can see it. God I was obviously judging. God, I'm sorry I didn't believe you. You would think that's what People would do. You and I think that way if you're a believer in Christ because we are believers. We, we already have embraced Christ. We've already cried out to Him. And we continue to cry out to Him. But their reaction is to dig in and hate God even more. And I want to work through chapter 16 again pretty quickly and, and look at this theme. Even though the judgment is so severe, so severe that it renders the planet uninhabitable, yet... People will not repent. Let's begin in chapter 16, verse 1. John says, I heard a loud voice from the temple, the holy place of God, because the judgment, it comes from God's holiness. The judgment's always coming from the temple, the heavenly temple in Revelation. Telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores like boils came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped his image. We worked through a little bit the first five of these judgments a couple of weeks ago. So I'm not gonna take time to go through every single one of them in detail. But you can imagine so many people in the world dealing with this terrible pain all the time, how work would shut down. And medical supplies would be exhausted. And then in verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. So now it's not just a third of the sea, but the whole sea. Global oxygen levels plummet. Commerce that depends on the ocean is destroyed. People are driven inland because of the stench of rotting sea life. Then in verse 4, the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. So now the remaining fresh water in the world is destroyed. And you can imagine the panic and the hoarding of any water that escaped contamination. People are not going to be able to survive long in a world like this, which is why the Lord's coming cannot be far away at this point. But here the action pauses for this aria... If you, some of you were in opera this week, you saw an aria, okay, if you were not asleep by that point, point. Uh, and, sorry, I should never have said that, but uh, yeah, there's this, this aria and in, in, in an opera, an aria is when everybody pauses and they sing about the moment, all right? And there's a lot of that that goes on in opera as well. Well, what's happening here is there's a pause in the action and this angel that's in charge of the waters in verse five is going to sing about the moment, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It's ironic justice. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar, which are the souls under the altar that we see back in Revelation uh, chapter chapter, uh, 6, where they're crying out for, for God's vengeance upon them because they were they were murdered for being his witnesses. They're crying out, yes, Lord the God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. They were promised this vindication and now they've been vindicated. They're saying amen from under the altar. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire, uh, perhaps to the ozone layer being taken away. We don't know. Perhaps to a giant solar flare, but either way, verse nine says, they were scorched, by the fierce heat. And what do they do? Notice, they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give Him glory. It indicates here, they know the source of this pain. They know where this heat is coming from. They know that God has allowed this to happen. He has power over these plagues. And in fact, because it's plural, they're thinking about the other plagues that have happened too. So they're, they're not sitting around believing the lie that you know, this is just global warming you know, or, or something, or climate change, I guess, is the, the new thing now. That, that something's gone wrong and because you know, the ozone layer is taken away and, and all this, they're not just believing that science as we hear all the time. They recognize in some way this is God, the creator who has power over these plagues, but they will not repent and give him glory. They will not. Instead of turning from their sin, they add sin to their lives through their cursing. They will not humble themselves to seek God's forgiveness. Verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bull on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. The dimmed light of the sun now goes out, leaving everyone in complete darkness, a, a palpable darkness. You can't even see one another. And it says people nod their tongues in anguish. And I don't think that the, The the blackness is causing this uh, pain and sores and things like that, but it probably compounds the problem of the pain they're already dealing with. The painful sores, the boils, the lack of water, the choking air, the burning on their bodies. But notice again, verse 11, they cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. They blamed God. They cursed him. They hate him, but they will not turn from their ways. Now, I've not ever worked through judgments six and seven. So I'm going to slow down just a little bit and bring some clarity to the rest of the verses in this chapter. Starting in verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare for the kings of the east. Now, if I can pause there for a moment, in my study of Revelation, here we go. In my study of Revelation, There are parts of Revelation that I come to that I already know there's going to be different opinions about what Revelation means uh, in, in this particular context. But there are other texts that I don't realize there's disagreement about them until I get there and start doing some research and find out nobody really agrees on what the particular verse means. This is one of those texts. This first verse I just read. Hardly any commentator that I know of believes that when it says the waters of the Euphrates were dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east, that is, they're bringing their armies across the Euphrates. That's what it says later in the text. That it actually means that the water of the Euphrates is dried up to prepare for the way uh, way for the kings of the east. And I can't begin to explain to you the complicated exegesis that some commentators go through, looking at their culture and the literature and the culture and what the Old Testament says and so forth, to come up with something different than what it actually just says here. But I've tried to be very consistent in my methodology in preaching through Revelation. I don't talk often about methodology and how my hermeneutic is working and all that kind of thing, but I want to tell you a little bit about it right now. The Lord Jesus Christ himself in Revelation chapter one tells John, write what you see. And all the way through Revelation, you have to be asking yourself the question, is John writing what he sees or not? Yes, he's writing what he sees. This is what God wants him to write. He's writing things he hears. He's writing what he sees. In fact, there's places we've already seen where the Lord says, don't write that. I don't want anybody to know that. John knows something we don't. He's told told what to write, what not to write. Sometimes John is shown a vision of something that represents something else. When John says that he saw a dragon on the edge of the sea and the beast rising up from the sea that the dragon is calling with 10 horns and seven heads, and another beast rising from the earth, it should be obvious that John is being shown a vision that represents something else. Because when you start unpacking what all those horns and the heads mean, et cetera, it would be very complicated to show John a vision that incorporates all of those things, whereas he simply gives him this one vision that means a whole lot. In fact, John identifies the dragon as Satan. The beast appears to be a political figure. We think the Antichrist who will be worshipped by unbelievers in the world at that time. The second beast is later identified as the false prophet. So the, 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 the prophecy tells us who these people are. This false prophet who serves the first beast by causing the world to worship him, and the beast, or the Antichrist, and the false prophet derive their power from the dragon, and together they form this unholy trinity. The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet that we see in the book of Revelation. So so yes, there are visions that John has and normally Revelation says this is a vision and it's it's really complicated. So you have that. But at other times, John describes things that he does not know quite how to put into words because he's never seen something like this before. So the description seems odd to us. When John says something like he saw a burning mountain fall into the sea, he's probably struggling to describe something in literal language but doesn't understand exactly what he's seeing. So the burning mountain could be something like a giant meteorite. I'm not denying that it's a burning mountain. I'm just saying that this is how John's describing it. And we have to think about that. I think when John describes the demon locust and the hideous horses in chapter 9 that I already mentioned, he's doing the best he can to describe what, what he sees. And by the way, the Lord chose a John and prepared a John to write just the book that he wanted us to have. And so he prepared him with the background and with the information and everything and led him to the task in exile on Patmos to write in his words what he saw, to give us the holy, inspired, prophetic word of God. And when John says simply that the waters of the Euphrates dried up, I don't think there's a mystery here. I mean, the water in the Euphrates, the river that God in the Old Testament uh marked, he used the water of of the Euphrates to mark the boundary of the eastern side of the promised land. John says it dries up. Now, we wonder why it happens, but John obviously knows what a dried riverbed looks like. He's not having to really invent something to describe this to us. And he knows what kings and leaders of nations are. Why does this have to mean anything except what it says? But now John describes the vision of the dragon again. Notice the next verse. He says, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. So what do we have here? We have this vision he's seeing, but it describes a literal event. In the gospels, Jesus often refers to demons as unclean spirits, Don't ask me why they resemble frogs here. I'm not really sure. Uh, I don't know if anybody else is really 100% sure either. Frogs are an unclean animal in the Old Testament. God says don't have anything to do with frogs to his people, at least uh, by way of finding them them on your dinner table. Uh, But you don't have to wonder here about whether or not these are demons because look at the next verse. He says these unclean spirits are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God, the Almighty. So out of this unholy trinity, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, Satan, the antichrist, the false prophet, empowered by Satan, three demons go into the earth doing what we already saw, these three doing in chapter 13. They were performing deceiving signs and wonders to persuade people. And here they're persuading the kings of the whole world to gather their armies for that date, that great day of God, the almighty. This is the day when Christ actually returns. It is that great day of God almighty. But wait a minute. Look at verse 12. It says it's the kings from the east. And here in this verse, it says it's the kings of the whole earth. Now, why does he switch there? Is, is this, uh, you know, supposed to be a figure of speech? I don't think so. Quite possibly, there are no more kings left in the world than those who are east of Palestine. With half the world destroyed by now, there may not be anyone left alive in the Western Hemisphere, which is bad news for us, but I'm not planning to be here at the time. I just want you to know. So what is this sixth bowl judgment? It is the judgment of demons drawing all of those who hate Christ and his followers to their final place of destruction, moving them across the globe. And if we can skip over verse 15 for the time being, I'll come back to that in in another week. He brings them to a place called Armageddon. You see that? In northern Israel, a couple of uh, summers ago, we stood on a high precipice on the edge of Nazareth overlooking the Valley of Jezreel where uh, I took this panoramic shot that I'm trying to show you. There's this high place, which is actually likely the same place that when Jesus' hometown rejected him, they tried to lead him to a precipice and throw him off. Remember that? This, we were standing up in the place that likely was near the place they tried to throw him down. But there's another name for this Valley of Jezreel, uh, namely... Megiddo, or as some call it, Armageddon. This vast field in the heart of Israel is the place many believe that the battle John speaks of will take place, a place large enough to hold the remaining armies of the world. Now, we are told, or not told, what lies and deceptions and promises these demons are making to these kings who bring their armies to Armageddon. Because this very battle is prophesied in the Old Testament. It's prophesied in Ezekiel 38 and 39 and in Zechariah 12, 13 and 14. It mentions this great battle at the end of time. Some believe that one of the reasons the armies assemble is to wipe out any other people who are believing only in the Lord so that everybody on the face of the earth is only following the dragon and the false prophet and the beast. But maybe Satan, the dragon, has t- contrived uh, this This. Uh, Uh, way to get everybody to come together because he believes that when Christ returns, he is going to overthrow the Son of God. They've got enough might. They've got enough power. They are going to overthrow him once and for all. But either way, they are assembled for battle on a planet that is being destroyed, living with boils, dealing with a scorching sun. Yet with all of the might they can muster, armed to the teeth with terrible weapons of destruction. And unwittingly, they are standing there for the final judgment. Because verse 17 continues that the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake." The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine and the fury of his wrath. Remember Babylon stands for whatever system is against God in the world. Babylon is code for that. And verse 20 says, every island fled away and no mountains were to be found and great hailstones about 100 pounds each fell from heaven on people. And how did they respond? They cursed God for the plague of the hail because of the plague was so severe. In other words, they did not repent. They would not repent. They only blamed God and hated him all the more. That is why this is a worthy judgment. Now, chronologically, it is at this point when Christ returns, I know that if you keep reading Revelation, we have chapters 17 and 18 and the beginning of 19 to get through before we actually read of Christ's coming. But there's a pause button that's going to be pressed. We'll reach to this by now in Revelation. And, and he's going to describe the implications of the fall of the world, both politically and religiously, economically and religiously in the earth. But if we can this morning jump to Revelation 19.11 chronologically and look at what happens next, I think it makes sense when it all comes together. Because with the earth rocking and reeling and hail falling, the last plague is poured out and Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the conquering King, breaks through the chaos and returns. Revelation nine to seven eleven says, "Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. Notice they've come for Armageddon, and he they are going to get Armageddon. They're going to get war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself." He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword to which, with which to strike down the nations that have gathered. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the battle really is over pretty quickly. The beast was captured and with it, the false prophet who in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. That's Armageddon. That's what the armies are gathering for in the bold judgment number six. They don't know it yet, but this is how it's going to go down from them. And John writes in the opening chapter of the book of Revelation in verse seven, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. You know why they wail? Because judgment has come upon them. For they would not repent. They would not turn away from their idolatry and their sin and turn to God, even though they had been given the opportunity. Throughout the book of Revelation, we've already seen this. God supplies the earth with witnesses preaching the truth. Calling men and women to turn to him. He even sends angels at the end of chapter 14, right? Throughout the earth, crying out, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. It's about to happen. This is the last call. Now, we've seen so much about repentance here in Revelation. Some of you may have thought, What about faith? What about belief? Why doesn't Revelation talk about that? Well, John does mention faith in Christ several times in Revelation, especially in speaking of believers. For example, he speaks of the endurance of the saints with reference to their faith in Jesus, the fact that they hold on to Jesus Christ and they don't let go, even though they're they're being destroyed because of it. But repentance and faith go hand in hand. Because if repentance means to change your mind about the direction you're headed and turn away from it, faith means recognizing what that better direction is and turning toward it and embracing it. You see, you cannot turn from one thing without turning towards something else at the same time. Those who are facing this severe judgment revelation who if they survive the plagues will finally meet their doom when the Lord returns. They have seen the world coming apart. They have seen the weakness of the beast. They have seen the power of God. They have heard the angelic cry to worship God. And they know that there are those in the world who refuse to worship the beast because they worship the Lord instead. They know this. It cannot be that they do not now acknowledge the Lord's existence, like they they know that He's there, but they stubbornly refuse to turn toward Him, turning away from their uh, sin, refusing to follow God and coming to Him at last is what they will not do. God is still willing for them to turn to Him even at the last he will receive them and give them everlasting life. I don't think there's a moment in the tribulation period if somebody didn't cry out to God and say, God, save me, I believe, I want to come to you, I want to turn from my life, that he will not save them. And let me remind you that this same dynamic is true today. There are some of you who are here this morning, maybe you're listening online, you have acknowledged Lord and His death for your sins and His resurrection. You believe He exists. You believe He's a Savior. You may even believe that He died for your sins, and you feel okay about that. And, and, And if somebody says, are you a Christian? You say, yeah, I'm good. I mean, we're living in upstate South Carolina. Everyone here grew up going to vacation Bible school for at least one week of their summer. If you had parents who wanted to have free bathing seating service, you went to several VBSs. You know, you just looked up what, when the VBS was at that church and just dropped you off from week to week. And so you probably heard the gospel presented an amazing number of times. And everybody's like, yeah, that makes sense. The, the hardest thing in talking to somebody in upstate South Carolina about the gospel is getting them to realize that they need the gospel. But maybe you've never personally turned to Christ to embrace Him as your Savior. There's an acknowledgement, but not an experiential knowledge of Christ. The one to whom you are trusting in for eternal life. The one who you are living for day after day. Instead, you are living for some other dream, some other hope, some other pleasure to give your life meaning and energy but the Lord is not actively in the fabric of your life. You've never really personally believed in him. And, and if, if that is true of you, you know this. I believe. I have talked to so many, especially young people who were saved, at least that was their testimony, for so many years and finally later on came to faith in Christ. And I, and I always used to think, well, they were just, they just didn't. They thought they were Christians. They just didn't know it. And, and, and every single Uh, One of them that I talked to, to the person, always said, yeah, I, I I knew I wasn't saved for a long time. They knew it. They knew it. They just wouldn't turn. And I would urge you today to turn away from life without Christ and truly turn to him fully in faith. That's what repentance looks like. It's changing your mind and your heart about the direction you're going and turn to embrace a better direction. And if I can speak to those of you who are believers this morning, you have turned from one direction to another because you have turned from your sin to embrace Christ for salvation. Some of you remember that turn, and it was dramatic. I've heard your testimonies. But some of you were so young when you trusted Christ, you you don't remember much about what you were turning from. But can I say this? Just as a believer continues to believe, so a repenter continues to repent. We have to be careful here. The Bible does not call us repenters. The Bible calls us believers. The emphasis is on our faith, but it's not what we—it's it's not what we turn from that defines us. It's what we turn toward. Nevertheless, in our walk with Christ, we often begin to follow after wrong teaching and wrong behavior. You know why? You know why sometimes we start practicing things that we said earlier on. I would never do that. It's not because we're reading in our Bible one day and we're like, you know what? The Lord has given me such a great time in the Word this morning. i realize that these, these sins I've been avoiding are actually okay. And, and so we start trying to obey the Bible and, and we get into sin. No, that's not the way it is at all. We start loving the wrong things. And later on, we try to correct what we think the Bible's saying in our minds so we don't feel the guilt, so we don't feel the tension anymore. That can happen to us. And we start going down a wrong direction. And when that happens, the Lord in his word instructs us to confess that as sin and turn around and go back the direction that we were going before. So that what we did when we came to Christ for salvation, we continue to do the rest of our lives. We turn from one thing toward him. And oftentimes we get into situations in our lives where we have to say, you know what, I got to turn around or I need to adjust my steps. I need to watch the way I'm walking we're preparing to gather around the Lord's table this morning. So I want to illustrate this point seamlessly by taking you directly to 1 Corinthians 11 and the passage we read every time we gather around the Lord's table. Would you turn there with me for just a moment? 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And in verses 17 and 18, as most of you know, Paul is writing this instruction about how we should deal with the Lord's table because the congregation he's writing to, we're not doing it the right way. They... they, they they knew the table meant we draw the body together, but they were living in disunity with one another. And Paul wants them to turn away from their disunity and turn again toward Christ and obedience, which brings the church together. And so he says in verses 17 and 18, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. I don't have good things to say about you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And his point here is that the believers in Corinth need to repent to realize that they are going the wrong direction in this area and turn around and begin to follow Christ faithfully again, because this is what Christ died for, to save us from our sin so that we would be united with him and united with others who are united with him. So Paul tells them what the Lord's table is about. Starting in verse 23, I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. And if we had time to unpack that this morning, he's saying we are one loaf together. In in the original Lord's table, we would take from all one loaf to, to demonstrate that unity, that solidarity that we have in Christ. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This is the blood that he's going to spill to ratify, to begin to make possible this unity. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then Paul gives them this warning. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. It's like you crucified Christ on your own. So he says, let a person examine himself or herself. Examine. Think about what's going on in the life. Am I following Christ or not? Then, and so, thus, having done this, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. We're talking all about judgment in Revelation, aren't we? Does this mean if I take the elements of the table that I am guilty of some sin that will make me experience the kind of judgment that is coming on people at Armageddon, that's coming on the unbelievers in, in Revelation? Well, here he is speaking of a kind of judgment in this life. Because in verse 30, notice he tells them, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. In other words, God had apparently inflicted some of the Corinthian believers who were causing, they were causing the disunity in the body. And God took some of them out for that. So Paul goes on to warn them in verse 31, but if we judged ourselves truly, if we're going to examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God. In other words, if we recognize on our own that there are areas where we are not following the Lord and we repent, we turn around and trust the Lord again in this area, we will not be in danger of any kind of temporal earthly judgment from the Lord. But then I want you to notice that Paul makes a very clear distinction between this kind of temporal judgment on believers and the final eternal judgment upon unbelievers that we've been reading about in Revelation. Paul says in verse 32, but when we are judged by the Lord, we believers, we are disciplined. There's a different word than judgment. We are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. When Paul uses the word discipline, it's the Greek word that means to train a child. In other words, any judgment that we experience as believers in Christ is God's loving discipline upon us as his children, training us to follow him, to continue to believe in him and to trust in him because we belong to him. We will never face that great day of judgment, that great day of wrath. So Paul says, live as if this is true. The Lord's table, I think, is a special time when God's people can gather to reflect upon their walk with the Lord. We need to do this other times as well, obviously. But I think this is a special time when we gather as a whole body to reflect upon our walk with the Lord. And one of the questions I think we need to ask when we come to the table is, what do I need to turn from? What do I need to adjust that I might follow Christ more faithfully? What do I need to change my mind about? What, what lies have I started to believe that scripture says that justify what I started doing that I one day years ago said I would never do? Is there something the Lord wants me to stop? Is there something he wants me to change? Is there something he wants me to just recommit to and do harder? So what I'd like to do is take a few moments before I pray, and I'm going to ask you to just talk to the Lord privately this morning and examine yourself, judge yourself. From what do I need to turn? What do I need to change or strengthen that I might follow Christ more faithfully as a testimony of the fact that I am not on the road to being condemned with the world because I'm in Christ. Share this time with the Lord together by yourself and let's observe the table after this as a people fully committed to following the Lord. Let's pray.